Now we have a, a reading of the scripture for the morning. My name is Tom. I'm the father of Jeff. I'm Jeff. I'm the father of Mitchell and Jordan. And this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the king David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jeoram. Jeroram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shetil. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud. Abihud, the father of Elikim. Elikim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elahud. Elahud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matan. Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Give him a hand. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Charlie family. I think that's one of the hardest scripture readings to do. I think the only one harder is maybe found in the Chronicles, the first nine chapters, and that's all genealogy for nine chapters. Aren't you glad I didn't have him read that this morning for the scripture? You would have been here and, and, you know, we would have gotten done and the only thing left to say at the end would have been for me to figure out a way to wake you up that we could have videotaped you and put it on YouTube and it would have gone viral. That would have been about the only thing left to do. So now you're thinking, wow, that's the scripture text for this morning. It's going to be a short message, right? What do you say about that? You know, uh, I I sit back and listen to that and it seems to me like it's kind of the cliff notes of many of my and maybe many of your family experiences when you're with extended family. There always seems to be that one relative who wants to tell you about everything, right? And sometimes they get out their their paper and they tell you about every friend and they tell you about what's going on and, and especially if you don't live near home, you don't even know half those people. And frankly, you're a caring person. You want to know your family member well, and you want to know the people that are important to you. But by the time they get through a list of 15 or 20 or 30 or 50 names of people that are close to them, and they're telling you all those stories, it becomes a little mind-numbing, doesn't it? And you just, you just go, man, just give me some caffeine, or, or that's the reason I stay only one day at home when I go home, right? 
But here's the amazing thing. On a very cold January morning in 1519, a gentleman named Ulrich Zwingli, who was a great leader of reforming the church during his day, wrote this about the genealogy that you just heard. He said, in that genealogy is the essential theology of the entire Reformation. In other words, the essential theology of the gospel of grace is found in that genealogy. And it can be mind-numbing to read it, but we're just going to take a look at it this morning and, and learn some lessons from it. You know, I mean, it, and it's more, than, it's more than just, if you're familiar with theology, it's, you know, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, and the reason he writes the genealogy the way he does is to prove the Messiahship of Jesus, to prove the fact that he's descended from the right people and, and he's fulfilling the right prophecies, but, but it's, it's far more than that. There's a, there's a minor lesson in the genealogy for us. Just a minor lesson that, that life and the way God answers prayer and, and how God thinks about us and loves us and cares for us and has a plan for purposes, it's not just about us. It's not just about us. It's about the generations. It's about, it's about our grandkids and, and their grandkids. And, and there's a plan and a purpose in the way God works with us and the purpose in our lives and in our prayers that we pray that He remembers not just for us but for generations to come. And there's a beautiful lesson in that. And yet, the huge lesson is that even though it's not just about us, the huge lesson is that it really is about us. That God is paying attention to you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you're at with Him today, no matter what your thoughts or your arguments or your sins or your confessions or your repentance or the good things that you've done in the last week, it is very much about you. He is this God who even through Scripture demonstrates even in this section of Scripture that He is attentive, He is compassionate, He is loving, and He is focused on you and displaying Himself through you. It's a wonderful theology of grace that we're going to look at today. And and I don't have time to go into all the biblical reasons of why we define grace, but I want to give you a quick definition of grace from a biblical standpoint before we actually start talking more. A definition would go like this, the, the completely unmerited, kindly initiated invitation to forgiveness and friendship with God even when you're still caught in sin and rebellion toward God, no matter where you are at, that God is sending an invitation to you, pursuing you, desiring to be in friendship with you, regardless of what's going on in your life today. And there's another aspect, a characteristic of grace that it's really easy for us to forget, really easy for us to overlook, but it's so important because without it, we don't realize grace in our lives. A lot of us think grace is just the fact that, oh, our, our spouse or our kids offended us and we choose not to deal with it. We choose to love them and forget it, right? That's, that's kind of sloppy, grace. Grace never avoids truth. A characteristic of grace is also truth. The fact that we talk about what went wrong who we are, where we've fallen short, where we've succeeded. We know the truth about ourselves. And within that context of us knowing that truth, God still, even when we're rebellious, even when we've fallen short, offers grace and forgiveness. There is no grace without truth. It's just sloppiness. 
if we think that's the way it is in our family even. So, looking at the genealogy, it starts off with the patriarchs, and it starts off saying Abraham's the father of Isaac, and, and we know that story, but, but there's a question that comes to mind for me in that when I read that. Why, why isn't the older son Ishmael or, or his mother Hagar, who are the more abused figures of this story, the ones that God pursues? I mean, isn't he for the down and out? Why wouldn't he pursue them? And, and it goes on to talk about Isaac being, Isaac being the father of Jacob, and and you have to ask the question, why not Esau? Why isn't Esau mentioned? I mean, Esau was the older son. He was maybe a bit rustic. He was maybe a bit impulsive. But, but generally, he was a hardworking person just trying to please his father. And in fact, one could argue that Esau was more fit to be chosen by God because Jacob was a liar. He was a manipulator. He was a deceiver at every turn in most of his life. And then it goes on to say Jacob is the father of Judah. But when you look at Judah and his brothers, which it mentions his brothers there, why Judah? I mean, why would God choose Judah? Joseph was the, was the brother who was famous. Joseph was the brother who endured all sorts of hardship, went through all sorts of difficulty, amazing abuse, every reason to be, to be offended, becomes the second most powerful man in the world and has the authority to exact revenge, and yet somehow he remains humble enough in his life to be gracious and forgive, even when he has the authority to take an exact revenge. Now, we understand, you know, from a scriptural standpoint that he's talking to a Jewish audience that, that, that he has to fulfill messianic prophecies, so we know, that, we know that he has to follow the line like this and all that stuff, but, but that doesn't take away from the fact of the initial choice of God in the first place to birth his son and affiliate him through a line of kings and leaders and people in Israel who were born of Judah, not Joseph who were born of Isaac, the deceiver, not, not Esau, the hard worker. I mean, it, it just it doesn't always make sense. And, and that's one of the lessons from this, this piece of the pie is that grace is not about earning something. Grace is about God having a plan and an invitation for each one of our lives. The story we miss sometimes in those stories is that God had a plan for Esau to follow him too. And God had a plan for Ishmael to follow him too. And they chose not to. But God chooses us and doesn't necessarily pick us because we're the sharpest or the most successful or the most well-known or the most powerful or, or, or the most capable. He somehow looks on our hearts and with compassion and graciousness for each of us, looking beyond our flaws and our sins, He ordains a purpose for us to live in each of our lives goes on to the next section of the kings, and we see in that section 14 Judean kings, and the reality is that most of them, all but a couple of them, were just flat-out unfaithful idolaters. They prostituted themselves to whatever their desire wanted, whether it was sex or money or foreign alliances and power and worshiping other religions. They did whatever they wanted to do. And, and, and also the ones in there, the, the very few, maybe three in that line who were, who were mostly faithful like David and Hezekiah and Josiah, they were an amazing mixture of sinner and saint, acting unfaithfully at one moment, and, but then repenting and coming back and and we see stories in their lives of them in their strength and their power of following God and their success. They, 
they're the men that everybody else fears. They're the men with the power, and yet we see them at times being weak-willed leaders who, who found it okay to ignore problems as long as it didn't affect them and to leave those problems for succeeding generations. In fact, in Hezekiah's life, we see God coming to him and saying, okay, I'm going to give peace in your lifetime. There won't be dis, uh, judgment and, and problems until your kids. And Hezekiah's response is what? Hezekiah goes, okay, well, at least it's not in my lifetime. I mean, it's the same thing we face in our world today, isn't it? The same thing, the reason we have problems in our government today is because we're not willing to make the painful, difficult, conflicted choices in life and we would choose rather to live in our own comfort as long as we can and hopefully the disaster won't happen in our lifetime. Yet we see it over and over again in this story of the kings, of God's utter amazing, beyond description, patience. Patience beyond anything that any one of us, if we were in his position, would even think about having. Generation after generation of people saying they love him and yet prostituting themselves to other things and, and going behind his back and, and even saying that he's not good, so I'm going to go over here and, and, and slamming his character. And yet whenever they would even repent, even half-hearted repent, through that time frame, we see God over and over again coming and forgiving and, and, and loving them and blessing them, all in hopes that through his love and his kindness, he can woo them back to him and back to his love. And then the next section, let's just call it the unknowns. Other than a couple people in this next section, we don't know anything about most of these people. They're just Ordinary folks. And I, you have to ask yourself, why list all these names? I mean, I understand, I understand the Jewish mindset of genealogy and proving it, but, but why not just say, you know, we've got all the generations counted, we've traced it, it's accurate, and leave it at that. Why put it in a text where we're going to remember it and read it forever? And, and, you know, by that third section, many of you were going, oh, Lord, help me stay awake until this is done, right? I mean, they're doing an excellent job reading it, but it's still, that's just mind-numbing stuff to read, isn't it? And look at, and sure, we get to see the name of Jesus' grandfather and great-grandfather, and, and you know, we, have to, we can think about the fact that they probably knew Jesus, and, and it's very possible that they may have rejected him because he was an illegitimate child, and it was against the law, and they were just heartbroken over it, or, or maybe they were good and they accepted him. And, and the reality is when we look at them, too, they're not, only, not only have they descended a long time and a long way away from kings, but but we know that they grew up in an area that was, well, it was Nazareth. Nazareth was one of those towns you didn't want to be from. We knew that Jesus came from a line of people who probably were generally good because it describes Joseph as this person who was righteous and good, but, but they were just poor. They were ordinary. They just lived life and died and hoped that their kids would live life well in a town, in a neighborhood that was despised because they were outcasts in the culture. And the beautiful lesson for us is that God's grace is not just for the greats. It's not just for those great people who make a name for themselves, who do something spectacular that the history books are going to write about. The good news is that God's grace remembers us even when there's nothing to write about our life, that, at least not from the world's perspective. We're just ordinary people and yet God remembers us and, and the beauty is that God does something divine and, and beautiful through our lives in spite of that.
And yet we're not, we're not done. We've gone through all three major sections, but, but there's four women mentioned in this whole genealogy, which is interesting in a patriarchal society that there would be any women mentioned. And the, but, but the odd thing is that the great names that we would expect aren't mentioned. We would expect Sarah, Abraham's wife. We would expect maybe one of the patriarchs' wife, Rebecca and Rachel. But, but no, the, the first woman named is, is, is this obscure figure of a, of a person named Tamar. Now, to explain Tamar's background, we need to understand something about Jewish culture and Jewish law back then that was... That was uh, it doesn't make sense to us today, okay? So it's just not going to make sense. It's going to seem weird, right? But the law back then was if you married off uh, your daughter to a man and that man died before she had children, that that family that she was married into would need to give the brother to her in marriage to have children with because children were so highly valued and carrying on the family name was so highly valued that they would just do that. And it, was, it wasn't an option, it wasn't something you could say, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. It was considered the law that you do that. And so Tamar marries Judah's oldest son, and he dies, no kids. He gives her the second son, and the second son dies, and no kids. And Judah becomes superstitious. And he says, maybe she's the problem. So he says to Tamar, well, my youngest son, he makes up a lie, my youngest son really isn't old enough to be able to give him to you, so you go live with your folks, and when he's old enough, I'll give you to him in marriage, and you can bear children, but Judah has absolutely no intention of following through on that statement. And time passes, and she realizes that Judah is not going to follow through on that, and, and so she does this thing in her... I mean, she's been unjustly treated. She's been abused. She's been given a promise and, and, and not followed through on. I mean, she's, she's not been treated well in this. And so she decides one day when she hears that Judah's going to be coming into the neighborhood where she lives, a little a town over from her, she decides to dress up like a prostitute and go prostitute herself and try to get him to pick her up. And he does. Now, Judah's wife had recently just died, and Judah's coming there, and he sees her, and he says, how much to sleep with you? And she says, well, uh, you know, sets the price, and, and, uh, and he says, well, I don't have it with me. And she says, well, okay, just give me a few of your personal items, like your signet ring and your staff and some other stuff, so that I know that you know that you're the, the, the you know, I know who you are, and, and it's valuable stuff that he's going to come back for. So he has sex with her, and she gets pregnant, and he goes home, and he sends his servant back with the payment, and he can't find her because she's no longer dressed up as a prostitute. In fact, the town says, we'd have no prostitutes here. We've never had any prostitutes here. I don't know, who, I don't know what you're talking about. Judah finds out that she's pregnant, and he's indignant. He's angry. He's going he's gonna to exact justice on her. And then he finds out that it was him. And his response is, she's more righteous than I. A woman unjustly treated in her grief and her loss chooses to manipulate one out of her bitterness and in so doing piles sin upon sin for her and for others around her. And there's a lesson in that for us when we don't deal appropriately with our own sin or with the sin of others against us that our reactions and we don't forgive and we don't realize how to deal with it in a healthy way piles upon sin upon sin upon us and pain upon pain on us. And yet, isn't it odd that she's mentioned 
in Jesus' lineage. It doesn't stop there. The next woman mentioned is Rahab, and she's a prostitute for real. Not only just a prostitute, but she's also of the Canaanites. And the Canaanites, after centuries and centuries of God trying to reach out to them, trying to bring them back to him, and their continued further rebellion and going further and further and further away and getting more evil and more evil, God finally decides that they have gone so far that they're not salvageable anymore. And they're all to be killed in the process. And yet, Rahab, this Canaanite prostitute who chooses to follow God in the process over her own culture, her own country, who knows whether she did it for fully right reasons or did it just to save her hide and became right after all, she, she becomes the father or the grandfather. Sorry, getting the gender wrong. Had a hard time with that this morning. We've had technical problems. I'm having technical problems with the genders at the moment. Uh, Rahab... Uh, Rahab is listed in, in the lineage of Jesus and then goes to Ruth and Ruth is this pagan widow of a, of a Jewish man and her mother-in-law, Jewish, is also a widow and she chooses to leave her country and follow her mother back and, and adopt her faith, adopt the Jewish faith and adopt the faith in one God and, and even in her life, though it's, it's kind of interesting, yeah, she becomes the grandmother of King David but at the time, she wasn't any, anything great. At the time, she would have been considered the lowest outcast of the Jewish nation, being a pagan. And Bathsheba is mentioned. The wife of Uriah, who was either complicit in adultery with King David or was raped by King David, fearing his power and therefore having sex with him. And then, and then her life is so mixed and amazing, amazingly painful in one way because she, she goes on to witness King David going headlong into self-protective cruelty upon his, uh, upon his sin and, and killing her first love, her husband Uriah. And then she is married to King David and sees him repent, and yet sees her child die. And it's just so, it's such an odd assortment of people to include in Jesus' lineage. And in one sense, you could say it's just a fitting backdrop to, to Mary. I mean, Mary in her day would have been considered scandalous, uh, pregnant out of wedlock, wedlock, unjustly judged. And in this process, there's clearly a couple messages being sent. There's, there's clearly, a, in a patriarchal society that did not value women, there's clearly a statement being made by God on his value of women and raising them up and honoring them. And yet, I think the bigger message for us is this power of grace lived out. Friendship and acting as a friend by God, making a beautiful statement about his love and his, and his whole mission by including in his lineage, in his family tree, the, the worst and the least, the powerless and the powerful, the, the accused and rightly accused and the unjustly accused. And he comes and identifies with us and identifies with that, which is really what living out grace means. You know, I think one of our highest aspirations this time of year is simply that, to, to be identified with someone. We return to our family roots. We want to go home. We want to go to family and friends because we want to be in a place where we're accepted for who we are, regardless of what we've done, where we've been, or, who, or, or, or anything about our past. We want to have a place where we just feel loved and we feel comfortable and we can call them family 
or friend. In fact, I would submit that, that for, for those who struggle with sadness and depression this time of year, much of that is centered around the fact that you may not have that family. You may not have that level of friendship in your life that allows you to be identified deeply with some people as friend, as family, to be accepted for who you are, regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you are or where you've been. And even, even our giving, when we give to the people who are less fortunate, we, we, we say less fortunate, part of that for us is the fact that we want to identify with them. We want to believe that we're the same as them and that if we just love them and cross that boundary and care for them, that somehow we can bless them and, and raise them out of some of that pain in their life. And, and so we give to those who we call less fortunate because there is this desire in us to identify with them. And the Christmas stories we watch, it's, it's the same thing. Every Hallmark movie that we watch at Christmas is about identifying. It's, it's somebody going across the boundaries to love someone and see them raised up. There's this one popular one that's been on a bunch the last couple of years. It's, it's the story of, I can't remember the name of the specific movie, but it's the story of this, this aunt who basically steals her children from her sister because her, her sister is all messed up and going to ruin the children, and she flees to protect the children. And she comes into this town, and, and they run out of gas. They can't go any further, and it's cold out, and it's snowy out. And, and there's this house that's empty, and they, they figure out a way to break in and occupy it. And when they're discovered, they just make up the story that they're actually relatives of the people. And they go through all these lies, and yet, and yet she falls in love, and the guy who falls in love with her, and then the whole story is about the town identifying with her and loving her and her identifying and feeling safe finally for the first time in her life and overcoming the lies. And, and it's, just that, it's just that desire to be connected, to be identified with somebody, something bigger than us. And God is communicating an even greater depth of grace to us and that same desire to be identified with us. He chooses a family lineage and ensures that his family lineage is written about in a way that includes the sinfully flawed greats the rebellious ones who he loves and he comes to earth to pursue and save, but they reject him. The abused ones who, and the rejected ones by society. It includes the people who in their hurt multiply their sin by, rather than dealing with it in a healthy way. It includes the ordinary folk that none of us would ever think twice about trying to remember their name. And Jesus' lineage foreshadows his mission. And his mission is to come to us as this touchable, baby that we can touch, that he can touch us, that we can know that he can be a friend of ours. And the true beauty is that whether it's the kings who rebel or whether it's the greats who did something great or whether it's the unknowns in this story and this genealogy, we see so much of the intent of God to accomplish his divine purposes through us regardless of who we are. And where this applies to us is if God throughout the ages accomplishes his purposes through people who are such a mixture of saint and sinner, of hero and coward, of, of people who are selflessly noble and then at the same time horribly self-centered at another moment, then what's the likelihood that God is wanting to work in and through you if he's done that in this story? What's the likelihood that his grace is coming to you in the same full measure? 
And Mary, it says at the end, it says, Mary is the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. You know, most of his life, he wasn't called Messiah. Most of his life, he was just called Jesus. And Jesus is one of those ordinary names. It's kind of like Joe or Mike or the, you know, the last name of Smith today. It's just an ordinary name. It's nothing special. And, and you would think that, that the God who would send his son into the world to love us would use one of the great titles about him when he sends him in. And they wouldn't send him into this obscure little town in a manger with very little fanfare other than a few humble people seeing, seeing angels and coming to him. Other than that, nobody really knew anything. And it was just ordinary. It was just nothing. And instead, you'd think he'd announce him as the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the, the Lord of Lords, the, you know, the Alpha and Omega, use one of those great titles about him. And yet, the title that he was identified most with in his life was just Jesus, an ordinary guy, a person we could look at and say, hey, you know, I, I, Joe could be a friend of mine. Jesus could be a friend of mine. He's the, he's the kind of guy we could look at and we could picture him sitting with us, watching a Buckeye game, drinking a beer with us, and just relaxing on the couch with us. And yet, he's so much more at the same time. But that's the kind of friend he wants to be, to be that brother, to be that friend, to be that sister to us, to be that familiar, to be that closely identified with us even in the midst of him being so much more. You know, what is it that causes people, what, what is it that causes you to move away from this Jesus who so utterly identifies with us, who wants to be so close to us? Do we find a tendency, do you find a tendency in your life to move away from him when you're successful and you just don't feel like you need him? Do you, do you find you, you struggle with apathy uh, or maybe it's times of tragedy and suffering. You know, maybe, maybe when you have a huge loss in your life or a death or, or a tragedy in your life, uh, you know, some people face those and, and they, they walk away and they put distance with God. And other people face those things and they pull into God and find a deeper faith, a, a faith that lasts, a faith that is, is so tangible and real to them that even in the midst of tragedy, they, they don't doubt the goodness of God because He's so good to them. And the Christmas story, starting from the very lineage of Jesus, shows us how He pulls into us in any form of suffering, any form of bondage, any form of abuse, any form of sin, any form of fear, that we have, he pulls into us. And his invitation is for us to pull into him. This touchable baby who wants to come and woo us to him. That we would realize how he identifies so closely with us that how approachable and how amazingly compassionate he is to us, no matter what we've done, where we've been, what we've been through, what we've done. We have a song that's a little bit older, okay? Can you handle that? Just a little bit older song. But it's so rich in just this response of worship to this God who is so gracious. I just want you to ponder the thoughts we've talked about and the thoughts of this song, and then we'll come back and close.
That's where God wants to take us this Christmas season. Where are you with God? Are you closer or farther away this year than you were last year? Maybe you're even closer to God, but but you're going, God, there's still more. How does God want you to draw closer to Him so that you realize in the depths of your soul that He identifies with you, that He loves you completely? That's where He wants you to be. That's where He's inviting you. Some of you, because of hardship or because of fear or because of questions, have held him off at a distance. And he wants to be so much more to you than he is right now. Will you accept his love? Will you trust his grace that would be so brave to identify himself with every possible situation we're in? And on top of that, to come and at the pivot point of history to be the one who comes as a baby touchable to us and suffers exactly how each one of us have suffered and even more. So that suffering would no longer take us away from him. That grief and loss would no longer take us away from him. But, but we would realize that he loves us so much that he would feel the same thing even on a greater level. Just to identify with us and love us and care for us. If you're here and, and you've never chosen to surrender your life to God, would you do that today? He loves you. He knows you. He's calling you beyond anything you can imagine. He wants to love you and heal you. Would you do that today? And if you're here today and and you're just saying, man, I've just been been keeping him at a distance and I just can't get past that. I can't get, would you allow somebody to pray for you, whether it's a friend next to you or as we dismiss, to come down and grab somebody to pray. Lord, we worship you. We can talk about how the joy of how your chains and your amazing grace have set us free, but Lord, uh, that still seems so me-oriented at times. And to stand before you, this God who is beyond description patient, beyond imagination loving, beyond thinkable coming to us to touch us, and to be touched even when we so desperately don't deserve it and we know it thank you Lord we worship you in Jesus name Amen grab a friend and pray or come and pray God bless have a great week